This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Let's pray. Lord, our tendency as human beings is to find all kinds of God substitutes in, in our lives. Um, but Lord, nothing will satisfy. There is no idol that we could put before you that is going to satisfy our souls. Jesus is better. And Lord, we, we desire for Christ to be reigning as king on the throne of our lives. And we desire to join King Jesus in the mission that he has for our lives, to know him and to make him known. And so we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word as we talk about that this morning. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. So when our kids were little and Melissa and I were, were living up on the peninsula, we weren't far from Bush Gardens. And so we had, uh, we had passes to Bush Gardens. Sometimes we just shoot up there uh, late in the afternoon and take our little kids uh, with us to have fun with them. And there was a, a play area for little kids at, at Bush Gardens that was like a series of tunnels and uh, slides and ropes and, and, and so forth. So you know, we're not talking about like the little play area at Chick-fil-A, you know, which is kind of confined. This is like, it's a big, big area. And so there were a lot of times when, you know, you, your eye couldn't be on them at all times. They might be in a tunnel or something like that. Um, and so there was one day when Caleb was little and he was, he was playing in this area and, you know, we're watching. Uh, but, you know, there's a few seconds when, you know, they're in a tunnel or whatever, you can't see them. That's, that's normal. But then he wasn't emerging from any of the slides at the, at the, at the bottom. You know, they pop out at some point. And, and he wasn't popping out. And so we, we began to call his name, and he, you know, there was no answer in return. I, I'll never forget how horrifying that was as a parent because all kinds of scenarios begin to run through your mind. You know, has, some, has someone uh, grabbed him when he was out of our sight? You know, has he wandered out of the back of this place and become lost? Well, he was just fine. <laughs> he was just quiet and not answering us when we called. But he was, he, was, he, was, he was in there, and when we found him, you know, he was perfectly fine. And he wondered, you know, what his panic-stricken parents were freaking out about. There's no, no issue whatsoever. But we live in a world where we are surrounded by people who are lost and they are ultimately lost. And unless the Spirit of God intervenes, they're going to be lost for all eternity. They are in the clutches of an enemy who is doing them harm and who desires to continue doing them harm for all eternity. 
we were once lost ourselves. But if you are in Christ, you have been found. And as someone who has been found, you've been given a mission. Found people find people. People who have been found have now been given the responsibility by King Jesus to join in his mission of finding others who are lost and rescuing them. What can give us passion to be on mission with Jesus and to, and to, to be on mission for finding lost people? Well, ultimately, only the Holy Spirit can do that. But part of what the Spirit uses is when we understand the heart of God, when we understand the the heart of Christ for the lost. And I want us to talk about that today. I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And in Luke 15, one of the great chapters in the Bible, Jesus tells three parables back to back to back. And they're all about something that is lost and something that is found. And so we're going to look at the first two today, and then we're going to look at the third parable next Sunday. Luke chapter 15 and verses 1 through 10, God's heart for the lost. Follow along with me in your copy of, of God's word. It says, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Or what woman who has has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. These two parables take us deeply into the heart of God. And so we're going to dive deeply into both of them this morning. But before we do that, we need to understand the context of, in which Jesus tells these three parables in Luke 15. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. It gives us the context. It says, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so the three parables that Jesus tells back to back to back are all in response to what we see 
in verses 1 and 2. Let's look at verse 1. It says, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to Jesus. Now, tax collectors and sinners, that's Luke's way of saying people who are far from God. Tax collectors were usually Jews who were working for the occupying Roman forces. They were collecting taxes from their own people. And usually they were skimming off the top as they did that. They were notorious cheats and despised by people. Sinners is kind of an all-encompassing term that includes people that were involved in various kinds of immoral lifestyles. So tax collectors and sinners, they were people who were far from God, but something remarkable was happening. It says that these people in large numbers were approaching uh, Jesus to listen to him. There was something about the ministry of Christ that was drawing these people, and they were listening. And when you understand kind of the biblical root of the word listen, especially in the Old Testament and Hebrew, to listen, to hear, is equated with obeying. So it wasn't that these people were just kind of cognitively receiving information from Jesus. No, lives were being changed. Their lives were being transformed as they were approaching Jesus and listening to him. Why would, why would people who were far from God, what, what was the attraction to Jesus? I mean, he was a rabbi. Um, he was straight-laced. I mean, he was teaching a message that wasn't always easy to hear, but yet they, these people who were far from God were flocking to him in large numbers, and their lives were being changed. What was it? Well, we get a hint here in verse 2. It says, and the Pharisees and scribes, those were the religious leaders of the day. They were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, this complaint by the scribes and Pharisees is very telling. And it tells us how different Jesus was than all the other religious leaders of his day. First of all, his message was different. And that doesn't mean that it was easy. Because when you read the Gospels, you see, you know, Jesus is preaching about things like judgment and hell. You know, Jesus is, is, is preaching about righteousness. In fact, his righteousness, the, the righteousness that Christ was calling for, was far deeper, far more comprehensive than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were concerned with just kind of checking off externals. Jesus was calling for a righteousness that came all the way from the heart. Jesus was calling sinners to repentance. He was calling them to change their mind about sin, to understand, hey, my sin is not okay. And, and we see in both of these parables, right, it's, he's calling sinners to repentance. So it's not that, you know, Jesus is just kind of putting a message out there that's easy to hear. But in the context of all of that, Jesus is giving a message of redemption, 
of hope. Jesus was saying to these sinful, broken people, life can begin again. In fact, you can be born again. Your sins can be forgiven. God will adopt you as his own child and bring you into a new family. That is not a message that these people were hearing from the scribes and the Pharisees. And so Jesus' message was different, and second, his manner was different. It says here in verse 2 that, that Jesus, this, the, 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 their complaint is that this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The word welcomes here, prosdecomai, means to have good will toward. These people could sense that Jesus loved them. And after he would teach, he would say, hey, let's sit down together. Let's sit down at the table together. Let's break bread together and talk about it. You can better believe the scribes and Pharisees were not breaking bread with these people who were far from God. But Jesus did. And so he's different in his message. He's different in his manner. Because the policy of the scribes and the Pharisees when it came to people who were far from God, their policy was one of separation. We want nothing to do with these people. We're going to keep separate from them. Now, as followers of Christ, there is a sense in which we're called to be separate. We're to be holy. And the word holy means to be set apart. It means to be, to be, to be separate. But what that means is separate from sin in our, in our own lives. We're to be set apart from sin in our own lives. It does not mean to be separate from sinful people. Now, there may be times in our lives, and particularly maybe, maybe as a new Christian, you know, you've been running around with the wrong crowd, and when you first come to know Christ, you know, you just kind of don't need to be around certain people. That's, that's just common sense, right? Or if you're coming out of a, a past of, of addiction or substance abuse or whatever, you know, you don't need to be hanging out uh, with the people that you used to do drugs with. I mean, that, that's, that's just sanctified common sense. But as a general rule, as followers of Christ, we are to seek to be engaged with people who are far from God. And we're to be intentional about it. We're to be intentional about seeking to be friends and to become engaged with people who do not yet know Christ, people who are not unchurched, not actively involved in any church family. Because we're on a mission. And what is that mission? Turn over a few chapters to chapter 19. Chapter 19. And we'll come to this in just a few weeks because this is another text that is uniquely found in Luke. But it occurs at the end of the story uh, where Jesus encounters Zacchaeus. But what does it say here in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10? Jesus gives us his mission statement here. What is it? For the Son of Man has come to do what? To seek and to save the lost. That's the mission of Christ. And listen, if you love Jesus, then you love being on mission with Jesus. If you love Jesus, then his mission becomes your mission. 
And the more that you love Jesus, the more that you have his heart. And he has a heart for the lost. And the more that you love Jesus, the more that you have love and compassion for lost people. Now, loving the lost does not mean that we're condoning sinful lifestyles. It does not mean that. There will be tremendous pressure on the church, and there already is, to condone uh, lifestyles that the Bible explicitly teaches are sinful. We cannot do that. We must not do that. We are not loving the lost if we do that. We, we must hold to what the Bible teaches about every area of reality. And in our culture, especially in these days, there's tremendous pressure to compromise on issues like sexuality and gender. We cannot do that. We must put ourselves beneath the authority of God's word in, in, in every area. And sometimes you may face situations where even somebody in your life that you love will say to you, hey, if you don't approve of my lifestyle, then you don't love me. If you don't say that my lifestyle is okay, then you don't really love me. Two things about that. First of all, that's just not true. It's just not true. Jesus loved people all the time without condoning sin in their lives. And we can do the same. Second, if you tell somebody who is in sin that they're okay in their sin, that's not a loving thing. That's ultimately cruel. And so we can't affirm people in their sin. What we can do and what we must do is love sinners. And part of loving people is sharing the good news of the gospel with them. Evangelism should flow from love. Part of loving people is sharing with them about how they can experience the ultimate love of a savior. And if we don't love people, love lost people en to, enough to share the gospel with them, then our love is sadly deficient for them. Because the most important thing, the most vital thing that lost people need to know about is the work of Christ. That there is a savior who loved them so much that he died for their sins on a cross and that he rose from the dead so that they could have eternal life. They can have forgiveness, new life, eternal life. Now if you know, if you know that and you've got the, the answer that they desperately need and you don't share that. I mean, you're like a physician, you're like a doctor who's got you know, medicine that could save someone's life and you're hoarding that and you're not sharing that with them. If we don't share the gospel with lost people, our love for them is sadly deficient. One of the most important ways that we can love lost people is to share with them the good news of Christ, the only message that can save because they're perishing. They're perishing, perishing ultimately and forever without a savior. And if you know enough to be saved, 
You know enough to tell somebody else how to be saved. So part of loving people is sharing the gospel with them and part of loving God is being on mission with him. Jesus says in Mark 1.17, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Listen, when you are following Christ closely, you are going to care about lost people. You're gonna, care, you're gonna care about lost people being found. And if you don't care about that, if you're apathetic evangelistically, it means you're not following very closely with Christ. Because to be with Christ, to follow him, is to be a part of his mission. It means that you care about people. You care about lost people. You rejoice when lost people are found and you want to be on mission with him. Last week, I was on the campus of Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth and my friend Matt Queen teaches evangelism there and, and uh, Matt occupies what's called the, the chair of fire, the L.R. Scarborough uh, chair of evangelism at Southwestern. It's named after L.R. Scarborough uh, who wrote a famous book called With Christ After the Lost. With Christ After the Lost. Listen, if you are with Christ, if you are in close, intimate fellowship with Christ, if you're with him, then by definition, you are after the lost. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So this is the context, okay, of these, the, these three parables. The two we're going to look at today, the one we're going to look at next Sunday. Jesus tells all three of these parables flowing out of the context of verses 1 and 2. So let's look at the first parable, a lost sheep. We see it in verses 3 through 7. So we told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them? does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it. And when he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Now, Jesus here gives a scenario that people in this first century context in this agrarian culture could relate to, and that is a lost sheep. Shepherds would, would get the sheep to get, at the end of the day, they would count their sheep. I guess that's where the expression, you know, counting your sheep at, at night comes from. But the shepherds would do this at night to see if they were all there. Well, Jesus gives a scenario where this shepherd is missing one. He has a hundred, and he's missing, he's missing the one. You say, but, you know, it's just one. He has 99 more. It's only one out of a hundred that's missing. But that one was so valuable to him. This is not a rich farmer, 
A large herd would be 300 sheep. This is a third of that. And so one sheep is valuable to him. But of course, this parable is not really about sheep, is it? (laughs) It's about the father's heart for the one. The one who is lost. You know, my heart was so broken by what happened in Nashville a few weeks ago and the kids who were killed there. And of course, one of them was a, a pastor's daughter. And of course, be, being a pastor and, you know, having daughters, I mean, I, I was, you know, obviously, you know, I kept looking at that family photo of Pastor Chad Scruggs and his family, you know, and there were four kids in all, three boys and then their, their little girl, Hallie, who was murdered. Imagine somebody saying to Pastor Scruggs, but, you know, you still have three kids. That's not how a father's heart operates. You, you grieve, you mourn the one that is lost. Who's your one? If you were to, if you were to sit down and you were to think about your life in concentric circles, and you were to start with a small circle of your immediate family, you know, and then expand the circle out to your extended family, and then expand the circle out further to the people in your neighborhood, and expand it to the people that you work with, and the people that you do recreation with, and the people that your kids are involved with, okay? When you, when you walk through your life, and the people that you know in your life, in, in those circles, there's, you're going to find more than one who doesn't know Christ, who's not actively involved in a church family. What are you going to do about that? Are you, gonna, are you praying faithfully for these people by name? Are you taking intentional steps to engage them with the gospel? and to invite them to a place where they can hear even more. Because our team, our our church is like Team Jesus. (laughs) You're all on this team together. You're out there every day in the course of your life, and you're, you're to be on mission, on the lookout, engaging people in your life. That, that don't yet know the Savior. You, and you should be talking with them, sharing the good news with them, but inviting them also to come and, and, and experience the message of the love of Christ that they can find in the context of the church family because this is a, we're, we're on a team together to reach the lost. Now the image of a shepherd here that Jesus uses in this parable It has a rich Old Testament background. And it's especially powerful when you think about the fact that, you know, the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus is addressing in these three parables in Luke 15, they're supposed to be shepherds. (laughs) They're religious leaders. Like their calling (laughs) is is to be shepherds, but they remind us of the shepherds that are talked about in Ezekiel 34 that that it says in Ezekiel 34 and verse 4, you know, God says about these shepherds, you have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the, str- the str- that should be strays, or sought the lost. They didn't care about the lost. 
Furthermore, they were furious with Jesus for caring about the lost. But when you come to know God, you come to understand that he's a shepherd who loves you. The most, maybe the most famous verse in the Old Testament, Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. And then in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 11, it says of God, he protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. And then when you come to the New Testament, in John 10, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. In John 10, and verses 11 and following, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. But God cares. He cares about everyone. Everyone. He cares about that one that is lost. Look at look 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 again in verse in, in chapter in chapter 15 here in verse 4. Look at the initiative of this shepherd. It's, it says that that he goes he goes after, leaves the 99 in the open field to go after the lost one until he finds it. He goes after the lost one passionately. He takes the initiative. We are to take the initiative to seek the lost. Look at the tenderness of this shepherd in verse 5. When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. He puts that lost sheep on his shoulders and carries it home. We were helpless to save ourselves. God saved us. And he tenderly took us up and carried us. Look at the joy of the shepherd in verse 5. When he, when he is found, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And in fact, it is such joy that it cannot be contained. He throws a party. <laughs> verse 6. And coming home. He calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I mean, sometimes joy is so explosive, you can't keep it within. You've got to share it. You've got to call people together to share in it. It's spilling over. And this is why baptism you know, is a public thing. We don't baptize people privately and, you know, in swimming pools or, you know, where people aren't around. No, people are baptized here in public because baptism is a public celebration of the lost being found. And a New Testament church is to be a church that is joyfully celebrating lost people being found. I mean, we can get so hung up in church on, you know, our preferences or our pet projects or whatever, and we forget the priority and the purpose of the church. 
It is to see lost people found, saved, and rejoicing in that. We should explode with joy, public joy. It's not a private celebration. And as we joyously celebrate the lost being found, we are joined by others who we cannot see. How cool is this? Verse 7. Jesus says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need repentance. As we celebrate, heaven is celebrating. And so ask yourself some questions to see where your own heart is in this. First of all, do you rejoice in what God rejoices in? Second, are you burdened for the lost people in your life? Third, are you taking the initiative to seek their salvation? A lost sheep. The second parable Jesus tells here in Luke 15 is about a lost coin. And we see it in verses 8 through 10. He says, Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Now again, Jesus tells a a story that is a familiar scenario to the people who are listening there, and it's the same pattern as the previous parable. First of all, something valuable is lost. This is a woman of modest means. It's one silver coin. It's worth about a day's wages in that culture. But for her, that's a huge deal. That's, that, she has 10 of them. That's basically all she has. That's her life savings. It's poor, uh, the home wouldn't have, was windowless, no, no natural light coming in. She has to light a lamp or whatever. This is a poor woman of very modest means. One silver coin. It's a the loss of that is huge to her. So something valuable has been lost. Second, a passionate search gets underway. Like the shepherd who, who goes after the one who is lost. What does this woman do? She's passionately searching. Verse 8, it says she, she lights a lamp and sweeps the house and searches carefully. She's, you can imagine her on her hands and knees, moving back the, 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 the dirt, the dirt on this, this floor, looking at every nook and cranny to, to find it. Third, what is lost, it's found. And then fourth, when it's found, a joyful celebration takes place. And once again, it is, not, it is not private joy. It is public. It spills over. She throws a party. When she finds it, verse 9, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin 
that I lost. And once again, the celebration is not contained to earth. Look at verse 10. I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. The dominant note here in both parables is joy. Let's look back through them. Look at verse, look at verse, go back to verse five, right? When the shepherd finds that lost sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. Verse six, coming home, he calls his friends to get neighbors together, saying to them, rejoice with me. Verse seven, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Verse nine, when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, rejoice with me. Verse 10, I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one who repents. Notice the transition here and the movement from the lesser to the greater. You know, the, this woman is passionately searching for a coin. But of course, the parable is not about a coin. It's not about anything temporal. It's about people. People who are eternal. People who are going to spend eternity in heaven or hell. What is the value of a soul? But we know what it's like to passionately search for temporal things. I do. In fact, maybe God was trying to impress a point upon me, but on Thursday, I had been studying this text all day. And on Thursday afternoon, I made a, a hospital visit. And they have a new policy up at Obasi where you have to take your driver's license out and you know, give them your license. And for some reason on Thursday, uh, when I, she handed me my driver's license back, I didn't put it back in my wallet. I just you know, shoved it down in my pocket. And so I went and visited somebody um, and I, you know, I, left, I left the hospital and I went to Wawa next door for gas. And when I got to Wawa, I looked down you know, to get my car to get the gas and everything. And I'm like, uh, uh, my, my driver's license is not, it's not in my wallet. And then I'm feeling down and my driver's license is not in my pocket. And I'm thinking, oh man, you know, the rigmarole that this is going to cause DMV and on and on and on. And well, what, what's, what am I going to have to go through or whatever? You know, I'm, I'm pouring over my car. My hand, I'm moving the seats back and forth thinking maybe it fell out of my pocket. I'm, I'm digging down and beside seats and the crevices in my car thinking maybe it came out there. You know, I'm, I'm, I pull out of like the gas place and while I'm looking down, maybe it, I, it came out of my pocket when I reached down or whatever, you know, it's not there. And so I drove back to the hospital. You know, those traffic lights couldn't change fast enough for me to get, get back there. You know, I go to the park. I couldn't, couldn't even remember what parking place I was in, but I kind of knew the area, you know, and so drove back to that area. I'm looking in parking places. I'm looking in between cars, you know, and it's not there. I retrace my steps, the, the route that I think I took. I'm not even sure what route I took, but I, what I think I took, and I, I go I, all the way back into the lobby of the hospital and I walk to the desk where one of those ladies is there and I'm like, you know, I just visited somebody here and I have lost 
my driver's license. And she says, what's your name? <laughs> and I told her my name and she hands me my driver's license. I said, where was it? <clears throat> she said, in the, par in the parking lot. And I, 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 I'm not kidding, I think I took that, light, that piece of plastic and kissed it at that, at that moment. I mean, we can be passionate, right? I mean, we, we can be passionate about searching for and finding things that are temporal. But we're talking here, folks, about people. These are people. People with souls. People, and people who, if they don't know Christ, they're perishing. Perishing for all eternity. And God works through people to find them. People like you, Acts chapter one and verse eight says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's no plan B. It works through you. Our church was started in 1827. And that same year, John Broadus was born. He became one of the greatest statesmen in Baptist life, part of founding uh, our first seminary. His commentary on Matthew, his, his book on the preparation and delivery of sermons, these are still classics that are read today. <clears throat> but John Broadus was born in Culpeper. And shortly after he came to know Christ, there in Culpeper, he knew he was called to share his faith with other people. And the first person that he shared his faith with was his friend named Sandy Jones, farmer boy there in Culpeper. And so, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a, he never shared, his, he never shared the gospel before. And so, you know, in, in, his, his, in, a, in a fumbling but faithful way, <laughs> John Broadus told his friend, Sandy Jones, how he could be saved. And Sandy ended up coming to Christ. And throughout his life, John Broadus died in 1895, but throughout his life, when he would go home to Culpeper, inevitably, you know, at church or somewhere on the street, he'd see Sandy. And Sandy Jones would come up to him and he would just stick out his leathery, farmer's hand and shake John brought us his hand and he, and he would always say thank you John I thank you thank you John I thank you for sharing the gospel with me and when John brought us was near death and his family was around his bed he said when I get to glory the first voice that I want to hear is my Lord and Savior and the one that I've tried to serve but the second voice I'm looking forward to is the voice of Sandy Jones saying to me on the streets of gold, coming up to me and saying, thank you, John. I thank you. Who's gonna be waiting at the gate to meet you when you go home to glory saying thank you. Thank you for being a part of me coming to Christ, or if you precede them, who are you gonna greet at the gate? 
knowing that you were a part of them being there and saying, welcome home. Let's pray together. You may be one here today who is lost, or maybe you're listening to this on a stream or even at some point in the future, and you're not certain that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Friend, he loves you, and that love has been demonstrated and that he died for sinners like you and me on the cross. Jesus lived the perfect life that none of us could ever live, and he died the death we should have died in our place for our sins. And then he rose from the dead so that we could have eternal life in him. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, what are we to do in response to the gospel? Repent and believe. Jesus says, repent and believe in the good news. Repent means to change your mind. Change your mind about your sin. Change your mind about the direction that you're going. Turn and then trust. Trust in Christ. Place all of your faith in his finished work on your behalf, his death for your sins, his resurrection from the dead. Ask him to come into your life. Call out to him and ask him to come into your life as your Savior and Lord and King. Christians, what are you doing about the lost people in your life? The people who are perishing. God has called you. He has put people in your life. What are you doing about those people? Are you praying for those people regularly by name? For God to work in their life and soften their hearts and open the eyes of their hearts to come to Christ? Are you actively engaging them and sharing the good news of the gospel with them? If you know enough to be saved, you know enough to share with them about how to be saved. Are you sharing with them? And are you inviting them to come and be a part of a, of a gospel church where they're going to be regularly exposed to even more of the good news of the gospel. So three specific things. Pray for them by name. Share the gospel. Invite them to come here and learn more. You can do that. You can do that. And as you do it, the Holy Spirit is with you because this is the mission that we're called to. Would you make that commitment today? And so, Father, we pray that you would bring home the weight of this in each of our lives. That, Lord, we are called every day, every day when we wake up and walk out, that we're on mission for you. As we walk out of the doors of this church, Lord, we're walking out into the mission field. Lord, may we wake up each day understanding I am an agent of God. I am an, an ambassador for Christ. I am a witness.
Lord, may we join you in your mission. It's in the name of Jesus. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.